Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. On this Christmas Eve, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 9, where we're going to look today at one of the most famous Christmas passages, at one of the most well-known words said, sung, read at Christmas time, foretelling the birth of our Savior. And if you were to begin at the beginning of the book of Isaiah and begin to read through these opening chapters, you would find that the message is one of judgment and of warning on the wickedness of Israel and Judah. You would find the Lord saying that judgment is coming because of our sin. And yet, if you kept reading and you found your way here to chapter 9, you would find that that was not the end of the story. God did not just have words of judgment for his people, though he did have that. But beyond that, God had a plan, and it was a plan of hope, and it was a plan of hope that would come through the birth of a baby. And that's what we are going to read about tonight. I want to read just two verses, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. So listen as I read from God's Word. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Our God, how we thank you for these words, how we pray that you would be with us tonight as we read them and meditate on them, and may by your Spirit you use them to point our hearts and our minds to Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, very clearly, these verses that we have read are a birth announcement. And I would venture to say that birth announcements are one of the most exciting and joyful times in a family. I mean, you know what happens when someone announces that they're going to have a baby. Immediately, there's screaming and there's, there's hugging and the ecstatic grandparents-to-be who are maybe more excited than the parents sometimes. And now you've got family text chains that start blowing up and gender reveal parties. And you, you, you keep going down the line, of course, and you have the progressing ultrasound pictures on the refrigerator. And then one day you get the call. We're on the way to the hospital and then you get the obligatory picture of post-labor mom with new baby. And you get the first visit in the hospital. The whole process is one of great joy. So thinking about the joy of the birth of a child, and I was thinking back to some words. Some of you may remember uh, that Christian musician Fernando Ortega shared when he was here a few years ago about the birth of his first child. 
He had his first child born just overwhelmed with emotion at this gift of new life. And so while his wife got some rest, they had taken the baby down the hall to the nursery. And, you know, back in those days, you could actually go and see the child in the nursery. It wasn't behind glass. And so he decided to walk down the hall and and visit his new little baby, walked down to the nursery, came alongside the bassinet, and just sat there and gazed in wonder and awe at this little child God had given him. And overwhelmed with emotion, he just began praying and praying and praying for this child. And as he was praying, just lost in his joy, the, the nurse came up to him and said, Ah, Mr. Ortega, that one's not yours. <laughs> Apparently, the, uh, the joy of new fatherhood got to him a bit and uh, got his confusion. But we know, don't we, the emotion, the, the joy of the birth of, of a new child. And so perhaps when, when Isaiah comes here and talks about overwhelming joy and gladness at the birth of a son, we might think, well, we know what he's talking about. We've been through birth announcements and new children before. But if that's what we're thinking, we would be wrong. Because what Isaiah has to tell us here is something categorically different than the happy screaming and hugging and first visits in the hospital that come with a typical baby announcement. No, Isaiah's message is that a child will be born who will reign as king and who will change the course of history, bringing joy and salvation to Israel and to all mankind. Now that's a birth announcement worth getting excited for. And as we look at it tonight, I really want to answer three questions. I want to answer the question, who will this child be? I want to answer the question, what will this child do? And I want to answer the question, how can we be sure? So that's the questions we'll look at tonight. And we begin in verse 6 with the question, who is this child? If you were to do a quick look back at verses 1 through 5 of this chapter that led up to our verses tonight, this chapter would show the condition of the world apart from this child. Isaiah uses words like anguish, contempt, walking in darkness, under the yoke of burdens, under oppression, and surrounded by violence. That's the state of things as Isaiah is speaking. This is a weighty description, of course. But then Isaiah says that this people who walk in darkness will see a great light, which will increase joy and gladness. And so immediately we begin to ask ourselves, well, how exactly is light going to shine? And how exactly is joy and gladness going to return in the midst of such darkness? And we find out it's because God has made a promise to break this yoke of burden and oppression. The weapons and garments of the warrior are going to be destroyed. And all of this is going to happen through the birth of a baby. Now, I've been excited about the birth of a baby for, but the kind of joy and significance attached to this birth announcement is completely unique. And we might ask ourselves, how is the birth of a baby? Can a baby really bring about this kind of light, joy, gladness, and increasing redemption and peace? Well, it all depends on who that baby is. Notice what the passage says. The passage begins by saying, To us a child is born. To us a son is given. Twice 
The passage emphasizes that this baby will be sent for us. Literally, the words say that this son will be a gift given to us. And when Scripture talks about something being given to us, the implication is almost always that God is the one who is giving it. And so as we come to this verse, we are reading that God is the one who is going to send this Son, and that He's going to do it for our sake, that He will be sent and given for us. That, of course, is an implication that Jesus Himself confirmed 750 years later when He came to His people. And in John 3, He announced, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. God's Son is the original Christmas gift. What's God's Son going to be like? Well, Isaiah gives us four names here for this Son. Now, I'm not sure what process you go through when you're choosing names for your children. I think there's a couple of different types of name choosers. There's the list name chooser, and that's where they just put lists up on the refrigerator. Maybe you have his list and her list, and the names just start getting crossed out in its process of elimination until there's one left. Or maybe you're more the inspiration namer, and you're just waiting for inspiration to strike. Uh, Or maybe you're more of the, I'm looking for a name of significance and what it means. Well, I think we would have to say, if you're in this last category, that you are looking for a name that means something, and you want to look at the definition of the name, the best we can do is choose a name that summarizes what we hope that child will be like. My name, Christopher, means follower of Christ. And of course, my parents hoped and prayed that I would be a follower of Christ. But just naming me Christopher didn't make that happen. You might choose the name of a biblical man or woman of character. And as parents, we pray that our children will live up to to that example. But it's no guarantee. But that's not what's happening in Isaiah when God tells us that his son will have these names. No, when God gives a name, it is not a hope, but a declaration. It is a declaration that this is who this person will be in their nature, in their character, and in their purpose. And so these names tell us something about who this child, this son that God will send will be. And look at these four names that describe the child. He is Wonderful Counselor. Now, of course, it would be a compliment to anyone to say that they are an excellent counselor. I mean, uh, dads, wouldn't you love it if your, your teens came up to you and said, Dad, your advice for me is always so wonderful. It's always worth following. And of course, it would be accurate to say that God's Son would be wise and would be the best guide for us in our life. But that misses completely the extraordinary declaration of this name. It is not just saying that this Son will be good at giving wise advice wonderful, which in Hebrew literally is one who is a wonderful, one who is a wonder, that word is most often used to describe God and His works. God is the God who works wonders. This name, this title is one that is used of God. In fact, you might even think of a very interesting connection in the book of Judges. And you think, book of Judges, I didn't think we'd go there on Christmas Eve. But in the story of Samson, 
An angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, comes to Samson's parents and talks with them. And Samson's father asks the angel of the Lord, what is your name? And the angel of the Lord responds, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? And he uses the same Hebrew word here. That is, his name is divine, passing human thought and comprehension, a wonder to mankind, a name that belongs to God. And so as one commentator writes, when Isaiah tells us that this child will be wonderful counselor, this name designates the Messiah not merely as someone who is extraordinary or with good wisdom, but as one who is in his very person carrying the name and the nature of God as he comes with wisdom and counsel for his people. What a glorious first name this child carries. And second, if there is any doubt about that, he will be mighty God. Now, I was, uh, was somewhat amused as I was studying this week to find that there are some who try to minimize this name and say, well, Isaiah's not really saying that this, is, this son is going to be God himself. To use this word is just suggesting that the son will be sort of a, a mighty hero who comes with godlike strength to rescue his people. Well, that's a bunch of baloney. Because the Hebrew name El here is only and always used of God himself in the book of Isaiah and never of a man. And especially when it is paired with the word mighty, the mighty one. Isaiah 60 talks about the mighty one of Israel. The mighty God is Yahweh the Lord and it would be blasphemy to use this name for anyone else. No, this son is going to come with the power and the might of God. And therefore, he will be able to overcome the world and to save to the uttermost all those who put their trust in him. Because he is mighty God, so he can assure us of that. Well, he's wonderful counselor, he's mighty God. Third, this baby will be everlasting father. Now, maybe it catches us off guard a little bit that the one who is called the Son is named Everlasting Father. But this title is not talking about the Son in his relationship in the Trinity. He's talking rather about his nature and his role with his people. And there's really two ways commentators interpret this phrase, and it could go either way. I don't know that I know which is, is correct for sure, so I'll give them to you both. Most commentators believe that the title is best translated, Father of Eternity. And the point would be that this child is going to be born, but he's not going to begin to exist at that point. That this child who will be born will be the father or originator or author of the world who existed from all eternity. That's one interpretation. Others think it refers more to his relationship with his people. As everlasting father, this child will pity his people like a father, will redeem, protect, love, and lead his people. He will take them from being orphans and bring them into the family of God forever, uniting them to their heavenly father. I might lean a little bit uh, that way myself, but either way you take the phrase, this child is rightly called everlasting father. And either way, this name is a great comfort to us as God's people. And then fourthly, this child is called Prince of Peace. And it's hard to imagine a more delightful, hopeful, and glorious name for our Savior than this one. 
I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you think of peace. Maybe when you think of of peace, you think about dinner tomorrow with in-laws and relatives that will be free from conflict or awkward conversations. Maybe you think of a break from work or a break from school and no pressing assignments or deadlines. Maybe you think of kicking up your feet in front of a fire with coffee or hot chocolate or something like that. But in Scripture, those do not come close to summarizing what this word peace really means. In Scripture, peace is far more than the resolution of conflict or taking away a stressor in my life. In the Bible, peace refers to the settled, unthreatened, joyful flourishing of all things. It refers to a life of blessing and reconciled fellowship with God and with one another. It refers to restoring things to the way God intended them to be. And we read here that this child will bring about such a peace that is so complete and so final that peace will be part of his name. He is the Prince of Peace, the one who restores and brings about this peace. No wonder there was an increase of joy at his arrival. But I wonder if you would just take a minute and think about these four names and what they imply for you and for me. One commentator concluded this. He said, these names are like a healing balm in which the Christian soul will find comfort and strength both now and throughout time and eternity. For they tell us that this baby in Bethlehem was none other than the Son of God who stepped into our lives in order to give His life for us. And in His death and resurrection, He offers us all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and the way and the truth and the path, the life itself through Him. He is the wonderful Counselor. He is the one who overcame the world and the enslaving power of sin giving the power of his right hand, the strength of his right arm to bring redemption to his people. He is mighty God. He is the one who did not leave us as orphans, as he said in John 14, but came for us and secured us in his Father's love, everlasting Father. And for all who turn to follow him, he justifies us, or that is, makes us right with God through faith that we might have peace with God. He is Prince of Peace. In other words, each of these names is first a glorious statement about who this child is, but it is then also a precious comment of what this child will bring for those who look to him in faith. This is who this child is. Now, if you're someone who keeps track of things, that was my longest point. The next two will be shorter But let's go on to the second question. We find it in verse 7, and that is, what will this child be? Well, verse 7 tells us, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, and he will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. In Isaiah's day, it had already been 250 years since God had come to King David and promised that Israel's future would be secured one day 
through a king descended from David and sitting on David's throne. Here in Isaiah 9-7, Isaiah declares, yes, that promise is still in effect. That baby is still coming who will sit on David's throne and establish it and uphold it forever. And of course, 700 years later, when we get to Luke chapter 1 in the Christmas story, Gabriel confirms it as well. When he comes to Mary and says, Mary, you are going to give birth to a son and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In other words, this prophecy is yet another example of God's perfect consistency and flawless faithfulness to his people and to his promises to do what he says he will do. For Jesus came and sat on the throne of David and secures that kingdom forever. But will you notice something remarkable about this child's reign? Isaiah says that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In other words, we're given a picture of a kingdom that will grow and grow and grow and increase and increase in its extent of peace as it goes over the face of the earth. Now, in the history of the world, every single kingdom that exists other than this one has always grown in size or extent through the sword and through oppression and through violence. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, we can keep going through the list. It is conquering and the sword. It's all the same story. But this child is said to arrive and to break oppression and to do away with war and to establish his growing kingdom with justice and righteousness and peace. Isn't that remarkable? And what's even more remarkable is that this baby not only is going to found his kingdom that way, but he is actually the Son of God, divine in majesty, who could call more than 12 legions of angels under his command. He could, with a word, wipe out with violence every person and kingdom and nation on earth. And he is the one who came as a baby and secured his kingdom by dying and increased his kingdom and its peace by sending his servants to the ends of the earth with the good news of salvation in the gospel. There's a a new Christmas song that was written just this year by Christian singer Phil Wickham called Manger Throne. And I love how he put this in his song. He wrote, You could have stepped into creation with fire for all to see, brought every tribe and nation to their knees, Arriving with the host of heaven in royal robe and crown, the rulers of the earth all bowing down. But you chose meekness over majesty, wrapped your power in humanity. From heaven to the cradle, from the cradle to the cross, let heaven and nature sing, this is our king. That's the king we're here to worship tonight. What what an incredible story of redemption and salvation that God would bring his government, his kingdom, his peace through a baby. Of course, we say it's an incredible story of redemption, but the definition of incredible is something that doesn't sound credible, something we could hardly imagine would be true. 
And I think this story fits that category, doesn't it? I mean, put yourself in the, peop- in the shoes of the people of Judah receiving this prophecy. God, you're going to do all this through a baby? And they didn't even know yet that it was going to be a, a baby born to a, a carpenter and a virgin who would be put in a cow's feed box. I mean, how likely is that? Maybe we'd be asking, how can we be sure that this promise is really going to be true. But Isaiah seems to be aware of this concern, or at least the Lord clearly is, because look at the last comment in verse 7. How can we be sure that this prophecy will be true? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Zeal might not be a word you use every day, but you know what the word zeal means. Zeal is the combination of energy and commitment. It is the passion to pursue something with all that we have because of its value and its importance. The Lord's zeal reflects the depth of his steadfast love to his people. But even more, it reflects his determined jealousy to protect the honor of his name and to vindicate his promises and his purposes that he has had from all eternity. Of course, if we talk about someone having zeal, well, you never know for sure whether their zeal will be effective. I I can tell you that my young kids have zeal about things sometimes, but in all of our excitement and our energy and our desire and our commitment, we're pretty limited in our ability to really control things, so you never know for sure. But this is the God of gods who puts on power like a belt and who reigns in inapproachable majesty and glory. This is the Lord of hosts. And if He is zealous to accomplish something, you know it will be done. And it was, beginning in the stable in Bethlehem. God made a promise. This hope of redemption and the increase of joy and gladness would come through a baby. A baby who would sit on David's throne and see the increase of his government of peace for all time. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. Well, if all that's true, as we conclude here on Christmas Eve, can I ask you just to pause for a minute and consider how we ought to respond to this baby? The first response, I think, has to be worship. After all, when the baby arrived... That's what happened in the New Testament. When Mary and Joseph went to the city of David, Bethlehem, and found no room in the inn but gave birth in the stable and laid their son in a manger, the silence of that night was shattered by a worship service. Because remember, in the same region where the shepherds watching over their flocks and an angel of the Lord appeared to them announced that Christ had been born that very day in the city of David. Good news of great joy for all people. And suddenly, a multitude of heavenly hosts filled the sky, singing glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now I can tell you, it is a wonderful privilege to stand up here and hear 700 voices singing the praise of God at you. But can you imagine what it was to have a multitude of heavenly hosts of all of the creatures, the the majestic angels of heaven coming and breaking into a worship service at the birth 
of this newborn king. And of course, it wasn't just the angels because Luke 2 tells us that the shepherds headed straight for Bethlehem and they found things just as the angel had said. And then it says they also returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard. So in Scripture, the first response to what God did was worship. That's the only fitting response, isn't it? As Phil Wickham put it in the chorus of his song, Glory be to you alone, King who reigns from a manger throne. My life, my praise, everything I own to Jesus the King on a manger throne. I don't know what what emotions or, or, or words come to your mind when you think of Christmas, but would worship be the word that comes to your mind this Christmas? Would Christmas Eve and your Christmas Day tomorrow be focused on the name and the person of this son, this baby? And would your hearts and my heart be filled with worship? That's the first response. Well, second and lastly, we should respond with self-examination. I don't know uh, many of you tonight. Maybe you've been coming to church your whole life. Maybe you're here tonight in a church for the first time in a long time. But either way, it doesn't make a difference whether you're here all the time or you're just here for the first time in a while. Would you take a minute to ask, where do I stand with this mighty God and this Prince of Peace? Now, maybe you say, well, okay, that's a good question to ask, but how do I know where I stand with the mighty God and Prince of Peace? Maybe, maybe you're like Calvin and Hobbes at Christmas, I like to review the Calvin and Hobbes Christmas uh, strips uh, at Christmas time, and so I was reviewing them the other day, and Calvin and Hobbes are walking through the, the snow, and Calvin says, I wish Santa would publish his precise guidelines for determining whether a kid is good or not. I mean, how does he weigh motives, for example? And does he consider the kid's natural predisposition? I mean, if some sickeningly wholesome nerd likes being good, it's not even a challenge for him to be good. I think one good act by me, says Calvin, even if it's just to get presents, should count as five good acts by some sweet-tempered kid, motivated by the pureness of his heart. Now at that moment, Susie Durkins walks by and Without a thought, Calvin lays her flat with a snowball to the head. And so Hobbes look over, looks over and says, of course, in your case, the question doesn't really matter. Well, maybe you find yourself asking the same thing. What are the requirements for being in this child's kingdom of ever-increasing peace? Has God published the guidelines that he uses to be part of this kingdom? Well, actually, yes, he has. And the guidelines are pure and perfect righteousness and holiness, honoring him and obeying him with a pure heart. And unfortunately, ever since mankind's fallen to sin, none of us meets that standard. And none of us needs a jury to determine that. If the standard is straightforward, pure godliness in thought, word, and deed, a simple review of yesterday and of last week will show us our failure to live up to the standard. But that's precisely why the Prince of Peace came. That's precisely why Isaiah came with good news of great joy that will lead to the ever-increasing gladness of his people. Because 
This Prince of Peace came as a light in our darkness to lift the yoke of our burdens, to take away our sin, and to bring us peace. Right at the beginning of His ministry, Jesus gave us the guidelines now for how a sinner can enter this kingdom. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Or as Paul put it in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, the guidelines aren't church attendance or, or general goodness. The guidelines are confess that you are a sinner. Repent and turn from living your way to follow Jesus and to walk after Him. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, the one who died to take the penalty our sins deserved and rose from the dead that we might have new life in union with Him. Come to Him. Ask Him in faith to be your Savior. For we are justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so tomorrow as we come to Christmas, you are offered real peace because the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace was born for us. His name is Jesus because He has come to save His people from their sins. And the question for each one of us is have you received and opened this gift that God has sent to us? Let's pray. Oh God, how we thank You that Your Son was sent and given for us. How we thank You that Your Son was wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, was born in Bethlehem that he might live our perfect righteousness and die to take the penalty our sins deserved and rise again that he might send his spirit and make us new, that we might live united with you, to follow you, to be with you forever. Oh Lord, we thank you for this King of Kings, this Prince of Peace, whose government will increase forever and know no end. Oh, may we find joy. Oh, may we sing and worship as we come to this child tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.